Good morning. My name is Dustin. If you don't know me, I'm on staff here at South Point, and we are currently in a series in which we're calling for real, in which we are reading through the biblical book of James. And if it's cool with you guys, I'd like to just jump right into our text this morning, because James has a lot to say. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, the words will be up on the screen. And this is what James has for us, as we've read once. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I love that, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is this passage in a nutshell? Basically, humans are terrible at judging, so we shouldn't do it. Humans are terrible at judging, so we shouldn't do it. We, as human beings, we have a tendency to judge other people based on what we see. But the massive problem with this is that we are terrible judges, and I mean like really terrible, like the worth, the value that we assign to other people. Like we might have the spirit of God inside of us, but we still have deceitful hearts and we still fight that earthly side of ourselves, what we call our flesh. And that flesh side of us, that earthly side of us, that side of us makes us terrible judges and it makes us unfit to judge the character or value of anyone. In the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Samuel and Samuel was a chosen man of God. He was helping God to find the next king of Israel. And so Samuel's looking for this next king of Israel and he strolls into town and he finds a man who has seven sons. And Samuel looks over these boys and immediately he's drawn to the biggest and the strongest, whose name was Eliab, and the Bible says this, it says, when they came, when Samuel came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He looked at this kid and said, this is definitely going to be the next king of Israel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I mean, Samuel is a man of God, right? He's a prophet, and he still reflects to us the problem we have with judging people based on the wrong things. And then, I mean, if you just think about Jesus, you know how many people I've heard say about Jesus, can you imagine how handsome Jesus was? Jesus must have been a tall glass of water, right? I mean, it's Jesus. And you know why we think that? 
We think that because we know the value of Jesus. We know Jesus is extremely valuable. And so in our heads, we immediately assign to him what we find to be valuable, which is good looks. He's valuable, so he must be attractive. But Jesus wasn't handsome. Actually, in the book of Isaiah, it says this, and I love the way the message words this. It says, the servant, Jesus, grew up before God the Father, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. It's an interesting way to describe Jesus. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. Samuel looked, Samuel looked at a tall, handsome man and said, this guy must be a king. And God said, well, he's not. And then the most devout religious people in Israel looked at Jesus and they said, there's no way that this guy's the Messiah. And Jesus said, well, I am. I mean, we think we're qualified to judge a person's value. We can't even accurately determine our own value. When human beings look in the mirror, it usually goes one of two ways, right? It's either you're ugly, you're overweight. Look at the bags under your eyes. Look at that hairline. Oh my gosh, you are a mess. Figure it out already. (laughs) Or it's queen, king, you're perfect. Anyone who you meet today will be so lucky you have graced them with your presence. Guess what? Both of these, wildly inaccurate, according to God's standards. I mean, you spend all day, every day with you, and you can't even accurately judge yourself. And then we have the nerve to go out and start assigning value to other people. James says, no, 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 no. James writes a letter to Christians. Don't be confused. This letter is written to Christians, to Jesus followers, and he says this is an issue And we need to address this. And he gives this hypothetical scenario, and I want to read this again. It says, count it all joy. That's not the passage. (laughs) It's not the passage. Um, He talks about this man wearing a gold ring. So if you guys want to back up to that, he says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, sit here, in a good place while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I think a lot of people think that this passage is about the difference in how we treat rich people versus poor people. But really, more than anything, it's actually speaking to how we as communities of believers, as Jesus followers, how we tend to assign value to people and then treat them according to how valuable we think they are. That we elevate those who appear to have it figured out while we place judgment or admonish people who are struggling. I think it's less about being rich or poor, although we do place value on that too. Right? There are certain churches that elevate people who have money and churches where everyone gets like gussied up and there's Sunday dandies and it's all this show about who has more money and who's more put together. But I think for the most part... I think that we as a church have grown a little bit, at least, and I think at least here at South Point, I really believe that if there was someone who was homeless and had nothing like walked into this church off the streets, that I believe that there would be people at this community who would be ecstatic to go and love them and serve them. I think if someone set up camp outside of our campus and wouldn't even come into the building, I believe there are people at this church that would skip the service to go and spend time with them. I believe that. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of churches. And so I think it's less about judging people based on how much money they have, and I think it has far more to do with how we treat people based on whether or not we think they're 
a good person. And how so frequently we decide whether or not we think someone is good based on how they present themselves or based on what they have. I know that as a church, we tend to talk frequently about how everyone is broken and in need of God's grace. And I think we'd all throw up our hands and quickly say, yeah, man, I'm a sinner. And yet, it seems like we still tend to avoid relationships with messy people. It seems like we, stand, we still tend to judge people who sin differently than us. We tend to judge people when they're broken as shows. Sometimes it feels like we only want to talk about being broken, but we never actually let people see the broken side of us. I think there's a not-so-obvious point in all of what James writes here, and I actually think that more than how we treat rich people or poor people, I think the point that he's trying to make is that Christian communities should exhibit and encourage authenticity. If you want to jump to that slide back there. Christian communities should exhibit and encourage authenticity. I think we know that vanity is an issue in the world today, even in the church. We know that people take a lot of time to present themselves in a certain way, both in person, definitely online, to look like they have it all together, even when they don't. And why do we do this? Well, like we just talked about, because you get rewarded by society for looking like you have your life together, and you get punished by society when your life is a mess. When you're perceived as good, more people will be drawn to you, they'll want to spend time with you, they'll want to help you. People are drawn towards what is put together. But when your life is a mess, people tend to avoid you. They judge you. They make assumptions about who you are and why you're struggling. I mean, what do we do when someone whose life is put together tells us they forgot their wallet and they need to borrow a few bucks for lunch? Like, we believe them, right? We help them out. They just made a mistake. But what do we do when someone who is homeless on a street corner asks us for a few bucks for lunch? Well, we analyze them and we try to determine what they're actually going to use the money on, right? We don't do that with people who are seemingly put together. We just assume the person that's put together, they must have made a mistake, and the person whose life is a mess, well, they probably bought this situation on themselves. We do the same thing in church. The people who put on the church performance, the people who you go, and you'll greet them and you'll talk to them, they're easy to talk to because you say, hey, man, how you doing? And they say, man, I'm great, no matter what's going on in their life. This is the man with the golden ring. They're low-hanging fruit. They're safe people to go and talk to. But the people who are visibly broken in church, the people whose sin is very visible and not easily hidden from everyone else, man, how many times do we pretend like they're fake Christians because they struggle? These are the man with the filthy clothing. And should they really be leading? Should they really be, like, serving? Do we really want them to be a part of our home group? I mean, like, they're really messed up. That's going to that's gonna make things messy. And if we do this long enough, we will create a church culture where no one is willing to be authentic. Where no one's willing to bring their darkness out into the light because if they do, they'll get judged, they'll get put in a box, they'll get labeled. And so Christian communities that do this, what they're really doing is they're encouraging people to hide their darkness. I mean, I'm telling you guys that the enemy loves Christian communities like that. Christian communities like that have driven more people away from the church than any other atheist could ever dream of. The thing is, we're not called to hide our sin. Actually, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says this. It says, take no part in the unfaithful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. People read this passage, take no part in take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. They, they read this and they think it means that we're supposed to go on a witch hunt and uncover everyone else's sins and bring them into the light. No, no, that's not what this passage says. This passage says you're supposed to take your sins and bring them into the light. Don't take part in unfruitful works, but when it happens, you expose them. You expose your own unfruitful works. And it's not even that it's sin, that you sin that, that brings shame upon it. It's that people hide it. That sin is happening in secret. I, I don't know if you guys have ever kept a sin hidden. Maybe you're doing it right now and no one else sees it. Family and friends, like they'd never even suspect you of such a thing. And the fear of being exposed, it, it does what? It pushes you even deeper into darkness. It makes you hide even more from everyone else to try to keep it hidden from them. And I'm telling you guys, the shame and the guilt and the self-hatred that comes from that is like astronomical. It is so deadly. This is not just a problem in the modern church. It's been a problem throughout church history. Jesus exposed this problem back in the church in Jerusalem. When he was walking the earth, he called out the religious leaders in the temple. And this is what Jesus said to the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What a vivid picture, right? A tomb which on the outside is beautifully cleaned and adorned, but inside is full of dead bodies and death. I don't know if you guys know this, this cemetery right out here off of 37 and Post Road. It's called Lincoln Park Cemetery. It's actually really beautiful. And they keep it well maintained and landscaped and it's always clean. And a few weeks ago, I was driving by that cemetery with my nine-year-old son, Camden. And this is the true story. And we were actually talking about how nice it is and how well they keep up with it. Like, it's, it's nice. And then, as nine-year-olds do, he got honest and he said, do you ever actually think about what's underneath all that? I mean, do we? As beautiful as it looks, and they can landscape it and clean it and make it as presentable as they want, but the truth is just underneath the surface. Jesus said it can easily be the same with us. We can make ourselves look as presentable as we want. We can get a haircut. We can wear nice clothes. We can smile at the right times. We can say all the right church things, but if there's darkness in here that we aren't willing to bring into the light, that there's still death inside of us. That's why we'll read in a few weeks that James says to confess our sins to one another, to get it out of the dark and get it into the light so that it will begin to lose its power. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians, that in this passage, awake sleeper, dead man, let the light, and like we just sang about this morning, stop hiding, stop performing. What's interesting about this example that James gives of the man with the golden ring and the man with the shabby clothes, is that back in James's day, rings were this sign of like great wealth and importance. And actually, high-ranking officials and people of great importance would oftentimes wear a ring on every finger so that everyone knew how important they were. Rings were a sign of status. And for this reason, because rings were so important and they spoke so much, 
they actually would have these shops where you could go and rent rings just for the day. If you had something important to go do, put a ring on your finger just for the day and fool people into thinking that you're more important or put together than you actually are. And I think James, in his very unapologetic way, is asking why are we rewarding people who put on a show and punishing people who come as they are in the church? I love how James words that he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. You've dishonored the person who's willing to be themselves and be authentic and come as they are. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Again, take money off the table for just a second and apply this to a church culture and see what the message is. He says the rich, the ring wearers, the performers, those whitewashed tombs, you're celebrating them and you're making much of them and they're the ones who are going to turn around and talk trash about you the second you walk away. The people who pretend to have it all together, they have to cut people down around them in order to keep themselves elevated. You know these people, right? The whitewashed tombs are going to judge you. They're going to play church games. They're going to create a toxic environment. And James says, we're going to reward this? Are we okay with this? I'll tell you one thing. Messy people might be messy, but at least someone who knows they're broken and owns it rarely judges other people. I keep it real with you guys, man. My wife, Georgiana, and I, we have a 9-year-old and a 2-year-old and a 10-month-old. And our 2-year-old, Felix, maybe some of you guys know him. I love him more than my life, but that little boy is a hurricane. (laughs) And so our house very much looks like a house that people live in, if you know what I mean. It's a nice way of saying it is extremely messy. It gets hit by Hurricane Felix on a daily basis. (laughs) It is not show ready. It is not perfectly put together. But you know what Georgiana and I do when we go to other people's houses and they're messy? We just laugh and tell them that it's all right. You're not alone. We get it. We're struggling too. Like our house is messier than your house, friend. I'm not judging you. We can be messed up together. We tend to be drawn towards those type of people. You know why I want a church full of broken people? Because broken people run to Jesus the fastest. Broken people run to Jesus the fastest. James says God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Does that sound familiar? If you read the Bible, it should, because he's quoting Jesus almost word for word in the book of Matthew. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit doesn't mean just like sadness. Jesus isn't saying only sad people are going to heaven. And again, it's not about money. Jesus isn't saying just poor people are going to heaven. This word, this phrase, poor poor in spirit, it's more like a state of awareness about yourself. Poor in spirit really means that I have come to the end of what I can do by my own power. Like I've officially hit my limit. Some people call it rock bottom, hopeless, broken. Like this story that I've been buying that if I just follow my heart, and trust myself that everything will be okay. I just found out that this 
is a complete lie. I actually just found out I have no control over what happens in this life. I'm not strong enough to make my life look the way I want it to look, and I'm not strong enough to keep bad things from happening. That's what poor in spirit looks like. In the Bible, poor in spirit looks a little bit like this. There's this story in the Bible where Jesus is walking on the water during a raging storm. And one of his disciples, Peter, he asked Jesus to let him walk on the water too. And Jesus says, let's go, Pete. Paraphrasing. And Peter steps out of the boat and he's doing all right. Like he's walking on the water and he's doing pretty good. And he's thinking, man, I've got this. And then the Bible says, but then when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink out, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. This is poor in spirit. That's what poor in spirit looks like. Jesus, I thought I had it all, but I don't. And now everything's crumbling around me, and my depression is killing me, and my anxiety is rattling me, and my finances are a mess. I'm entangled in this sin. My faith is weak. I can't find it within me to do any of the things you've called me to do, and I don't have enough discipline to stop doing the things you don't want me to do. And now I'm, jing- now I'm sinking like, Jesus, save me. And Jesus says, that's it. That's it. That's the most powerful posture the most powerful position we will ever be in in our entire lives when we come to the end of ourselves and we throw our hands up and we cry out, Jesus, save me. It might hurt. It might not be fun. But it's the most powerful position spiritually we'll ever be in in our lives. And James says, not only do we have to be these kinds of people, but we have got to be a church that celebrates this posture and rushes to love these kinds of people because if we don't, We're really creating an atmosphere where no one can be saved. If people can't bring their junk into the light, if people continue to hide their brokenness and pretend everything is okay, if we keep playing these church games and we never reach the point of repentance because we've created an environment where everyone's pretending they don't have anything to repent from, we create this environment, we'll never experience healing and we'll never experience salvation. We'll just be another stop on someone's deconstruction journey, just another stop on someone's road trip away from God. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, this idea of favoritism, if you're drawn to the people who look put together and you are put off by the people who are not, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, it's pretty wordy. But do you hear what James is saying? James is reiterating this idea that no one is holy except for God. And so to play these games as if some people's sin makes them less than others, or the more put together or more worthy, there's no room for that. Because we're all broken and only God is holy. And this idea to love your neighbor as yourself. And that goes so much deeper than just being nice to people. And it's also not permitting any type of self-love. I mean, it really comes down to loving ourselves as Christ, 
intends us to love ourselves and then extending that love to other people. And so it really begs the question, what, what does it mean to love yourself as a Christian? Because we say you, you love your neighbor as yourself, but if you're not loving yourself well, then well, it doesn't really mean anything to you, right? How does God intend for us to love ourselves? I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it's not simply embracing myself for, for who I am, because if that was the case, I wouldn't need to be crucified with Christ. And it's not embracing myself for who I am, or, or else I wouldn't need to deny myself. And I mean, it doesn't mean showering myself with gifts. That's not what loving myself means. It doesn't mean treating myself to a spa day once a week. It doesn't mean looking myself in the mirror and telling myself that I'm perfect, because that's a lie. I mean, if you're a Jesus follower, how do you love yourself? And I just want to wrap up today by giving you three ways that you can love yourself as a Christian because by consequence, this will teach us how to also love other people the way that James is calling us to. So three ways you can love yourself and other people as a Christian. The first is to embrace your identity as a child of God, like Christian. You were chosen by the creator of the universe. Jesus left the comfort and perfection of heaven to suffer and die on a cross that you might experience life. It says in 1 Peter, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous life. Like, I don't know if you know this, but you're loved. You're seen, you're valued. You're a son or daughter of the most high God. There's nothing better in this life. And so you don't get to badmouth yourself anymore. You don't get to look in the mirror and hate yourself because no one dismisses a child of God, not even you, not even when it's yourself. You're chosen, you're loved. What if you spoke to yourself this way? What if we spoke to each other this way? And for the people who aren't believers in your life, who haven't been adopted into the family yet, they might not be children of God, but they are made in his image and they are worthy of love. They're valuable. We can begin to love ourselves and love others when we embrace this identity as a child of God. The second, stop comparing. Comparison is a murderer of joy. You want to love yourself better? Stop comparing your life to other people. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. Comparison will steal your gratitude. It'll make you resentful. It'll make you feel like you don't have enough. It'll make you question whether or not God has even blessed you. First Corinthians, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Well, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Like your skill set, your blessings, your skin color, your background, your track record, your sins, none of these things make you any more valuable or any less valuable in the eyes of God. We all stand level at the foot of the cross. And if we understand this, we understand this and we'll just embrace what God has given to us and celebrate what God has given to those around us instead of being jealous and comparing all the time. And for goodness sake, man, if we'll just stop judging people who sin differently than we do. I mean, did you not hear, James, if you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of all sins. So that sin that you judge other people for, you're guilty of that too. So you have no room to judge them. 
can stop comparing, we take our eyes off of ourselves, we take our eyes off of other people, and we begin to set our eyes firmly on Jesus. No more comparing. And then that leads to the final way that you can love yourself and others as a Christian. And that's to be gracious but not permissive when you fail. Be gracious but not permissive when you fail. Man, I struggle with this bad. I either get really cruel to myself when I make mistakes or I just chalk it up to it doesn't matter. God loves me anyway. Both of these are extremely dangerous. God says he forgives our sins and remembers them no more. In Corinthians it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, this is God's posture towards you. You have been forgiven. God is not keeping a record of your wrongs because Jesus has made you righteous with his blood in the eyes of God. Even when you struggle, even when you fail, this still stands. So continue to walk in obedience. Even when you fall short, you don't go back to square one, you just keep walking. Would Jesus be gracious to yourself? Says for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It means you're never going to get this right this side of heaven. You're going to continue to fail. You're going to continue to mess up. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not going to be perfect. The flesh side of you is going to have its moments, but don't, you don't have to walk on eggshells and you don't have to hammer yourself because you've been forgiven. We've got to give ourselves time to allow the Holy Spirit to do what it does. You're being sanctified and made holy day by day, time after time. We don't get permissive about our sin. We pay attention. We try to walk in obedience, but when we inevitably fail, instead of beating ourselves up, what if we just express gratitude that Jesus died for us? And then what if we showed the same grace to other people? We could create an environment where people could come in here and be honest, be transparent, bring their darkness into the light and begin to experience healing. Three ways you can love yourself and other people. Embrace your identity as a child of God. Stop comparing and be gracious but not permissive when you fail. I wonder if we'll be a community that continues to embrace this even further. Will we be a community of people who owns our brokenness and also embraces those who are broken? I wonder if we'll be a community of people who are quick to run to Jesus in our brokenness we don't judge those who are broken, we just encourage them to do the same. And you've got to get back to Jesus. Will we love ourselves as Jesus intends? And will we extend that same love to other people? Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the upfront words of James. I know that here at South Point, you have fostered an environment. You've created an atmosphere where people can be transparent and authentic but God we need to be even more so and we need to create an environment where people feel free to bring their brokenness forward at the foot of the cross and experience healing where we don't have to hide from those things because we belong to a community that embraces the broken that it's safe to be messed up here that we understand that even when we're poor in spirit when everything's falling apart we fall down to our knees that we are actually in the most powerful position we could ever be in this life and instead of judging those people and ostracizing them and labeling those people. God, we need to celebrate that. They're the role models in this church, God, the broken who fall on their knees and cry out to you, not the well put together, not those who look like they have it put together, not those who rent the ring, not those who say all the right things, but let the role models in this church be the ones who fall to their knees the fastest. 
I know if we can do this, we will continue to allow you to do the work that only you can do and shine your light on the darkness in this house, God. Continue to restore us and sanctify us and make us holy. God, I pray that you allow us clarity to understand what it looks like to love ourselves, not as the world loves themselves, but as you have called us to love ourselves, that we can walk in confidence and hope and peace, and that we extend that to those around us. We know if we can do these things that there is no end, no end to the peace and hope and healing that you can accomplish. Lord, may your kingdom come down to earth, beginning with this church. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.